Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Evening shadows make me blue When each weary day is through how I long to be with you, my happiness. This week, the Bookshelf Cinema is screening A Walk in the Woods, Hyena Road, Reflector Tapes, Spur Guelph, Big Ideas in Art and Culture, My Internship in Canada, Truth, and more. The Bookshelf is an independently owned cultural hub located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph, more information about their hours, listings, blogs, directions, and accessibility, please visit bookshelf.ca. Years it seems have gone by since we shared our dreams. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. And winter is coming. 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 And winter is coming. Winter is coming, and so is the fourth season of the Long Winter Art Series in Toronto. Volume 1 takes place on November 13th, featuring a ton of music, including performances by Calvin Love, Sahara, Eloquent, and many, many more. There's comedy by Laugh Sabbath. There are DJs. There's a ton of visual art happening. There's uh, arcade games curated by the Hand-Eye Society. A bunch of dance stuff is happening. There are zines. I'm hosting my Long Night with Vishkana talk show with guests Desmond Cole and Eloquent and stand-up by Matt Collins. Uh, someone invented a game called Invisible. It's a, some kind of sport. There's food. There's lots and lots of stuff. Long Winter, Year 4, Volume 1, takes place Friday, November 13th at the Great Hall, which is located at 1087 Queen Street West in Toronto. Starts at 7 p.m. It's an all-ages licensed event. Uh, unfortunately, the venue is not wheelchair accessible. You can learn more about how to keep up with Long Winter at torontolongwinter.com. This episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero, the finest pizzeria in all of Guelph, Ontario. They've got delicious gourmet pizzas or choose from an array of fresh ingredients and make whatever you like. Calzones, wings, panzerottis, salads, breadsticks, garlic bread... Pizza Trocadero has it all. You can find them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph or visit them online at trocaderoguelph.ca. That's T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A. Call them at 519-829-2444 for pickup or delivery. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. 
Creative Control with Bish Khanna. is a music writer of the highest order who splits his time living between Nashville and Massachusetts. Over the past 40 years, he has written definitive books about American music, including Dream Boogie, a biography of Sam Cooke, and Last Train to Memphis and Careless Love, his monumental twin biographies about the rise and unmaking of Elvis Presley. His latest book is a riveting and exhaustively researched portrait of the founder of Sun Records in Memphis, Tennessee, the man who discovered Presley and other icons like Howlin' Wolf, B.B. King, Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, and Jerry Lee Lewis, among many others. The book is called Sam Phillips, The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll. It's out now via Little Brown and Company, and here now for a discussion about it is the great Peter Goralnik. Hello, Peter. How are you? Hi, Vish, and thanks so much for the introduction. Now I've got to live up to it. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I I don't normally butter people up this much uh, at this point in the show. (laughs) Some would argue I do. But honestly, you know, this is a huge thrill for me. Your books have meant the world to me. I'm a music writer myself, and, uh, you know, I'm doing the thing I said I wasn't going to do. I'm fawning. But I, these Elvis <laughs> books, I tell you, I send these Elvis books to anyone. If someone's like, I need a book, I'm like, take these. Take, borrow these books from me. Go buy them. I have them. I share them all the time. They're wonderful. So thank you for those. Well, thank you. <laughs> now, where are you today? Uh, I'm at home. I, I live about an hour north of Boston, and... Uh, uh, I, I teach uh, at Vanderbilt. I teach creative writing in the spring, so I go down to Nashville in January. Oh, I see. But I, I you know, I've spent over the last forty years, or I've probably spent as much time in Memphis as I have at home. So, uh, or at least I know as many people or more people in Memphis than I do at home. So it, 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 I, I sort of feel I don't feel torn, but I feel um, divided. <laughs> yeah, it, it does seem when 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 reading the book, it does seem like you have deep connections and roots uh, there, and the people that are talking to you. It's more than just uh, I'm talking to an author. It, it, you can kind of sense a familiarity between you and your subjects. Well, I mean, everything I've ever done, every story I've ever written, has been self-generated. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I don't say that as a boast. I mean, it's not. It, it, it's caused you know any number of difficulties over the years trying to be able to make that work. But I've never done a story on assignment, and I've never done a story about anyone for whom I don't have personal enthusiasm, belief, commitment. Right. And so, so you know, that, that was really, I, I started writing about the music because I wanted to tell people how great this music was. I mean, it just didn't, uh, when I started writing about it, uh, you know, you just didn't find 
any mention of people like Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, Bo Diddley, yeah. uh, Gary Lee Lewis in the mainstream press. And, and I started writing for the uh, alternative weeklies and, and, you know, for Rolling Stone when it started. And it was really the intention. I mean, I, I always saw my writing as, as a way of trying to convey some of the majesty of the music that had moved me so much. And that that has continued to this day. I mean, it, it it's not it doesn't matter if it's the, strictly the music because I never consider myself a critic. But to tell people about Howlin' Wolf, to tell people about Sam Phillips, to tell people about Waylon Jennings or Robert Pete Williams or Solomon Burke, uh, it's, it's been a thrill for me uh, all along. Well, I mean, I think you're speaking from the perspective of someone who has had uh, maybe come close to being assigned something they didn't want to do. <laughs> I mean, as a music writer myself, you, you sometimes get end up in a situation where someone asks you to do something, and you're like, well, I don't, that's not my passion, but uh, I guess I'll do it. And then then you you, you really appreciate how much, uh, you, you, you the, like doing the thing you really love, I mean, you really appreciate that when you've had to do something that you're not that keen about. Well, I guess so. I, I may not have ever reached that level of appreciation. <laughs> no, I mean, I never, I never worked for anybody. I was never yeah. on staff. Where I've always been a freelancer, and and it's been hard to sell stories. Sometimes it's often been hard to juggle stories. So that, for example, on one trip uh, early on, uh, I went out and I did stories uh, on uh, James Talley. On uh, I may get this slightly wrong. On James Talley, Charlie Feathers. Rufus Thomas and somebody else, but it all involved getting, uh, you know, getting uh, travel money from one place, getting somebody who would put me up in a hotel for one night, some, you know, somewhere else. But it was it was juggling the thing in order to make it work because I yeah. could find people who were interested in the subject, but but it uh, but it was and the every one of the stories was a story I was passionate about, but it was but it was difficult. I had to combine them in such a way that uh, I, I I never made any money, but I had to combine them in such a way that I wasn't going to lose a lot of money. Right, yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. There's, there's a... Uh, this book, I mean, you're talking about kind of working independently and the ind- independent spirit that you have, and I, I mean, you're talking about Sam Phillips, a guy that uh, was really adamantly independent. Did his spirit, did, did he influence you in any way in that regard? Well, I think that's what I found so inspiring uh, about him when I first met him in 79. I mean... You know, we all construct pictures of people and of things that we haven't seen, and, and in a way, that's the basis for imaginative literature or imaginative art. Yeah. You know, you do the same. You do that with radio. You do it with books. You do it with films. Uh, and uh, but meeting Sam Phillips, like meeting Solomon Burke, I mean, for example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it it gave reification to something that I or or writing about Elvis. I mean, it's, you don't even have to meet. Uh, you know, in in writing about Elvis, I found an Elvis that I had previously written about theoretically from the outside. But what I wanted to write about in the biography with Sam Cooke, with Elvis, with Sam Phillips, I wanted to write a story from the inside out to the to the extent that I could, and that means throwing away all preconceptions and throwing away these sort of the external, yeah. the external, the mythification of things. Uh, but meeting Sam Phillips, I mean, to come back to what you said was so extraordinary and was so inspiring because what he was talking about was essentially the things that I've always cared most about. Uh, I mean, he may talk about individualism in the extreme, you know, would be how he would say it. (laughs) And I might not, I might not say it quite that way, but, but the kinds of writing that I admired, the kinds of music that I admired and the life that I sought out 
represented an individual an individuated life. I mean, it was Gerard Manley Hopkins, William Carlos Williams, uh, Howlin' Wolf, uh, you know, Robert Johnson. It it was it was seeking out individual voices and prizing the individuality of those voices and of my own. Right. Of recognizing. I mean, all I, I come back to. I mean, I've used it so many times, and it, it's. I think I can't remember. I think it's close to the end of of. Uh, of this book, um, you know, the biography of Sam Phillips, but at the conclusion of our very brief interview, I mean, by Sam's standards, that first time, that first meeting was a brief interview. It was only two and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> Every interview that I did subsequently, you know, seems, I would say, it was a minimum of five hours and sometimes yeah. more. But at the conclusion of it, what he talked about was, you know, if things went on as they did, and apply this to the present day. I mean, I think it, it remains a warning that we can all heed. It has nothing to do with trends. He says, for, for God's sake, we don't need another trend. And I mean, he was talking about, you know, the real, R-E-A-L, real. Right, right. And, and he, uh, but he said, you know, if we abandon our individuality, if we, if we uh, just um, give in, to this creeping conformity that we see all around us, whether it's political, whether it's social, whether it's artistic, if we lose sight of the real things that matter, which is not a particular genre, a particular, you know, it, it, it's the real things that matter are what matter most to us. And if we lose sight of those things and subscribe to some common bond, he says, you know, we're, we're, we're going to lose our freedom. And he says, and, and, what would, you know, and we're going to wake up in jail and not even know it. And I feel like that's that's a message that can reverberate even just as strongly, if not more strongly, today than it did when I first met him in 1979. But it it rang in my ears. It wasn't that he was telling me anything that was new to me, but it gave it so such weight. And to recognize that this music that had it just, I mean, changed the world. I mean, it and that it had so much impact on me came not from some haphazard, you know, well, let's see what we can get today but from, in a sense, from this driving sense of mission, both artistic and social and political. I mean, it, it, it was extraordinary. It was just something that, that has never left me, that first meeting back in 1979. Well, given this thread of authenticity and reality, I mean, now that you mention it, it really manifests itself in interesting ways in your book. In this book about Sam Phillips, you end up writing about how you ended up writing this book about Sam Phillips. Uh, it, gets, right. it gets kind I, of meta. And, 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 and in fact, he encouraged you to tell this story and the story of Sun Records and its artists, warts and all. He wanted you to do justice to this era, and that circumstance is at tell least... The, tell the damn truth. From right. the very first time I met him, it was always tell the goddamn truth. You know? Yeah, <laughs> and that, that, that advice, that this circumstance is at least somewhat unusual when you're, unless you're co-writing a book with someone. Now, given your long-term... Well, relationship, if you're co-writing a book, <clears throat> the opposite might be the case. Oh, is that right? Well, it could be. I don't know. I've never yeah. co-written a book. But <laughs> I, I've I never done it either. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, to actually know the subject you're sort of profiling that intimately, as you mentioned, like in, you didn't know Elvis, you didn't know Robert Johnson, but you know, you got to know a version of them uh, through your research. And I'm curious, given your long-term relationship and reverence for Mr. Phillips, did you ever question your own objectivity in telling his story? No, no, I, I'm not a big believer in objectivity. I think that every time somebody says objectivity, it's a dodge, uh, and somebody else's objectivity is going to collide with it. Hmm. And I don't mean that, that. That's not a rationalization. I just feel like, you know, 
whether it's fact checking or it's the newspapers that go back on a story that they you know put out with such assurance. I'm not blaming them for putting it out with assurance the day before, but uh, and I do think that the internet has destroyed all, uh, in a sense, um, uh, almost. The, the Internet has destroyed any concept of objectivity, which I think is not a particularly good thing, because, I mean, the idea that simply by asserting something you can make it true, you, you can see the result in, in politics, at least in American politics, every day. Right. But, no, I, I didn't... Uh, see, when I wrote... A, just to take Sam Cooke for, for an example, I, I wouldn't call... I, I, certainly, I've done a lot of research on all of the books. I mean, I've written three biographies in... Um, I started the Elvis in the uh, uh, at the beginning of '88, so it's that's it's now 27 years. So you know, roughly nine years to a biography, and often much of the material material goes back before when I start started writing. Yeah. Uh, so I do do. I mean, the research is important to me, particularly in terms of having this kind of objective correlative, having being able to. Um, Oh, I don't know. You know, triangulate. Uh, you say this, I say that, and the third person says that. Well, let's put that up against what the newspaper said. And you know, if, if I tell you it was pouring down rain on November ninth, nineteen fifty-four, it's worth looking up to see if it really was. Now, that doesn't mean it. it Maybe it happened on November tenth. I mean, this is not of great consequence. But what is of great consequence? I mean, but it, but it's important. It's important to establish the the facts of the story to the fullest extent you can, but much more important is, is to establish the voice, from my point of view. And so when I wrote about Sam Cooke, I spoke to people who uh, could recall not just his words, but his impulses, his beliefs, his aspirations, with almost identical recall. Right. When I spoke to people, I mean, I spoke to people like his brother, L.C., J.W. Alexander, Bobby Womack, his widow, Barbara, uh, and... Um, I'm leaving somebody out here who's, but not who were not people who agreed with each other on much of anything. It wasn't that they were necessarily close to each other, but when they spoke about Sam, the, the portrait that they drew, and the way in which they recalled him, both incident and uh, and the voice which they gave him, was virtually identical. And that was the way that I found myself in. I found my way in. To telling a story, to telling the story of Sam Cooke, and, I, and feeling with confidence that I was representing who Sam Cooke really was and what he really wanted and how he lived his life, not because I was imposing something from the outside, but because I spoke at great length. I mean, probably in, ma- in many cases, in almost all of those cases, probably spoke dozens of times to them. Uh, and uh, once again, I couldn't be more grateful for the manner in which they welcomed me. They took me into their worlds. They showed me. It wasn't just a matter of sitting around and, you know, jawing or anything. It was actually going to the places where they had been, where with Sam, where Sam had lived. With it just, it was the entire range of experience. Now, with Sam Phillips, you're right. I I, I knew him for a long time. I mean, uh, or you know, a long long time is relative. I knew him for almost 25 years. Yeah. I went from that extraordinary first meeting to uh, when I started working on the Elvis. Uh, then I began to see him quite regularly, uh, and then it went beyond that. And I would see him just as a, we, you know, we did all kinds of things together. We went places. Uh, we worked on the documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, spent a long time working up to working up to getting him to agree to do the documentary, which we did in '99. Uh, but 
no, I, I felt that there was never any holdback with Sam. There was never any telling what was going to come up. There was never any uh, attempt to prettify or to you know skate over things that might be um, that might seem as if they would be awkward. Uh, one of the first times I met him, uh, he was telling me about the eight electroshock treatments he had in Memphis in 1951, which was the second time in 51. He was uh, 28 years old. He had had eight shock treatments in Birmingham. Uh, when he was 21 years old in 1944, mm-hmm. uh, which I didn't know, but anyway, which I didn't know at, the, at first, and which, but which again he volunteered. But when he's telling me about this, he calls up his wife Becky and says, "Now, Becky, when exactly was it that I went into?" And I can't Ramsey. Um, I can't remember the name of the hospital. It was the same place where William Faulkner would go to dry out. Right. Uh, and uh, I. Uh, and Becky's saying, now, what do you want to be telling that man that for? And I didn't know Becky very well at that time. She became a, a I mean, I, she's a wonderful person. She was a wonderful person and a wonderful friend. This was Sam's but, first wife, Becky. Uh, yeah. Well, he only had one wife. Oh, that's right. They, they, never, they never separated. That's right. Yeah. No, no, they separated, but they, they remained extremely close, and they remained married, and uh, their lives were intertwined until the, uh, the day he died, yeah. while yeah. at the same time he was with Sally Wilburn, uh, whom you can call his companion, his partner, uh, whom he lived with from 68 on and was, was with from 56 on. Uh, and uh, Becky and Sally became friends, too. Yeah. But anyway, all I was going to say was you said about objectivity. So Sam calls up Becky and says, well, now, when was I in, this, in, the, in the hospital getting the electroshock? And she was taken aback, although I'm sure this wasn't the first time that Sam, uh, you know, uh, you know, opened up this kind of subject. But uh, she said, "What do you, you know? What do you want to tell that man for?" But he did. He wanted. That was part of the story. It, he wasn't saying it as a romantic thing. He wasn't saying it as, and look, I overcame it because he, you know, insisted that he was still subject to the kind of whatever you want to call it, anxiety or panic attacks or depression that had led to his being hospitalized in uh, in '51 uh, yeah. and to having electroshock. But so he, there was no holdback, and there was, and more than that, there was no holdback on anybody's part with respect to Sam and anybody in his family. I mean, everybody took seriously uh, his dictum. You tell the damn truth, and and sometimes the truth was uncomfortable, and sometimes, you know, one person's truth could hurt another person. But but my intention in writing whoever I've written about over the years, you know, from Charlie Rich and Feel Like Going Home uh, to uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter who. I mean, to Otis Spann or to uh, Howlin' Wolf. I mean, my intention is to treat each, or Merle Haggard, my intention is to treat each person I write with with respect and with dignity. I'm not interested in showing showing anyone up. I'm not showing, and I certainly don't ever want to show off at anyone's expense. Yeah. So while the truth may be, while the truth may be uncomfortable at times, I I, I feel as if, with so many of the people I've written about, I mean, I remember Charlie Rich when I when I first met him. I never, I, I just had never liked anyone better than I did him and his wife Margaret Ann. I met them in 1970 out at the Vapors. Uh, uh, it was a tea dance, which uh, there were six sets for each of the three performers, and uh, I met Charlie and Margaret Ann Rich that night. And I thought I've never met anyone I liked better. And when I wrote the chapter for Feel Like Going Home, I thought, this is terrible. I'll never meet them again, because it told a story that Charlie had told me and Margaret Ann about his depression, his agoraphobia, his drinking, his guilt. And not long after the book was published, 
I got a call from the woman who was the executive, um, I don't know what she was, the executive, executive secretary or, uh, at, uh, at the publisher out of Bridge and Dean's Fry, a woman named Margaret Pete, and she called up and said, you know, she was so excited, she said, you'll never guess who called, and it was Charlie Richard called and ordered 30 copies of the book so he could give it to everyone in his family. And when I saw him not long after that, he said, you know, he said, the truth hurts. He said, it's painful sometimes, but it's the truth. And I wanted everybody, you know, and and he, you know, and I'm not saying everybody is like that, but, you know, I, I was not writing to make him into a bad person. And anybody reading the chapter today would just think this is so namby-pamby. This is not, you know, <laughs> how could Peter be talking about anything like this? But it was, it, it was a real, but I felt like I had to keep faith with with the reader, I had to keep faith with the subject, and I had to keep faith with the truth, and that's what guided me all all through this. I mean, this sort of stems from Sam's uh, Sam Phillips' philosophy towards recording people too, to to encourage them to to trust their essence, to trust their core, as opposed to putting on airs or you know trying exactly. to come up with something uh, and to and to express themselves to their fullest and to let themselves go to the extent. It's just like right now. You know, you could say, God, why is he talking so much? You know, what an idiot. (laughs) But, I mean, the point is, in some ways, it's not that I'm doing this because of Sam, but I just feel like, you know, what the hell? I mean, I'm going to say... Well, I'm going to say what my, what my response is to your questions or whatever yeah. to the best of my ability, and I may screw up. And, and as soon as we hang up, I may start thinking, "Why did I say that?" <laughs> but well, I but I don't want to work from a script. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to just have this, you know, pat these pat responses that are safe. Yeah, uh, I, I I don't you know I don't feel like I'm saying anything terrible, but but I, at the same time I'm. I'm I, I want to do what Sam did in the studio, uh, and I want to do that in the writing too. Yeah, I mean it's 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 like with uh, you know Jack Kerouac talking about spontaneous Bob prosody, or Chet Baker saying let's get lost. I mean to me, if you can achieve that spontaneity, or if you can get lost in what you're doing, let's say you're writing for four hours, you know, and if you get lost in it, or you 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 achieve that spontaneity for ten minutes of that four hours. Well, that's a good day. Yeah. But that's what that's what you're aiming for. It's those those moments, those unexpected moments, and, the, and those the expression of something that you didn't really know you had in you. So, I mean, there is a parallel there, of sorts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, music fans might know the basic aspects of Mr. Phillips' role in founding Sun Records and supporting the artists he recorded, and some might also know that he pioneered the the slapback sound at the Memphis Recording Service right. or Sun Studio, but. There's a whole other side to him and the breadth of his knowledge and and his entrepreneurial spirit that really shocked me when I read your book. Can you talk a little bit about his work life beyond Sun Records? Well, I I think that what I wanted to develop, and and to some extent, this is sort of a funny, I mean, I've come to realize this in in doing interviews for the book, book, uh, book, (laughs) uh, is that by all along I felt that I, I had to inject my own perspective into the narrative. It would be doing a disservice to present, to pretend an objectivity that, uh, you know, by saying the reporter or, the, you know, by going into the third person or something. I mean, I was present at, the, by, by my presence at events, which in and of themselves may not have been of the greatest significance, but I had an opportunity to observe Sam from the very first time I met him when the when the radio station flooded. I mean, you try to take advantage 
of whatever situation you find yourself in. As Sam said, if a telephone went off in the middle of a session, well, you keep that damn telephone on the record. He says, because, you know, how much would it cost you? That was the best goddamn telephone in the world. <laughs> <you know>? like, <laughs> right. Uh, and, and in some ways, this is what I've come to realize is that by having that, that, that by having that first person insight, which I hope I didn't, I, I don't overdo, or I certainly, I don't mean in any way to call attention to myself, but by having that first person perspective, because I was present, um, that's my version of slapback. It adds a kind of, you know, it, it, it's an attempt to make, it's an artificial attempt. I mean, you said meta, but it's an artificial attempt to make the real realer than real. And Sam felt that with that addition of sort of uh, um, repetitive echo, yeah. which he could control, that he was creating a manner of listening to the music rather than, the, rather than this flat, perfect, sterile way which nobody ever hears me. I mean, if you go out to a bar, you go out to a beer joint, you go out to a juke joint, that's not the way you're going to hear the music. And he was creating a kind of artificial clatter, which he could control, but which, for him, enhanced the reality of what he was presenting. And I think Hemingway, with with his dialogue, I mean, people, at least when Hemingway started writing, were just, uh, you know, they were extraordinarily impressed by this, this, dialogue that Hemingway writes is absolutely real. Well, it wasn't real. It was a mannered, you know, it was a, it was an artifice, but it was an artifice which was uh, intended to create a, a greater sense of reality than if you simply put down what people said in, you know, in an unenhanced and flat way. Right. But in terms of Sam's, Sam's life, I mean, what I wanted to do was to create the sense of I didn't want to follow some linear path. I mean, it, to me, it's not interesting once a person becomes famous to follow the course of their life in this chronological, linear way. And you say, well, he got these awards this time. He went to this place. Uh, he was recognized by this organization. I, I just don't think that's of any interest. In Sam's case, Sam plunged back into radio. I mean, he plunged back into radio in, in uh in the early 70s in his hometown of Florence, and this gave him a renewed... Uh, he was totally... Radio was his first love. Radio was his last love. He was yeah. just absolutely uh, loved it. But but I didn't want to write a book in which, well, Sam bought a radio station, he built up a radio station, he sold a radio station, he improved the tower, you know, he built a new tower on a mountain. I wanted to give a sense of, of what an extraordinary person he was, what an extraordinary character he possessed. And so I wanted to, to write a book that, that in a sense, was based more on, I mean, more on the early part of the book. The strictly historical it follows the chronological almost completely. Right. I mean, in a, in a very uh, strict manner, uh, it, just as the Elvis and the Sam Cooke did. But the second, it may not be the second half, but the last third of the book, after Sam has left the music business, is much more anecdotal and much more digressive, and follow some things to their conclusion, which may take place years after they first started, in order to sustain, you know, uh, in order to sustain the narrative, and throws in things like uh, Sam's call to Fidel Castro right after the Bay of Pigs, where he encourages 
Castro to hang in there because he sees Castro as the epitome of, you know, of the democratic dream. He says, these people don't understand you. I don't know who he was talking to. He came to feel that he was talking to Raul Castro. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I wasn't on the line, but he talked for a long time. <laughs> uh, but that, that kind of thing, or his going to uh, his friendship with Audrey Williams after he, he found a whole new life in Nashville after he built a studio there in 61, a much more relaxed social life, and he became very friendly with Hank Williams' widow, Audrey, yeah. uh, and whom nobody in Nashville liked. I mean, she, uh, and it could be because she was a strong, independent woman, it could be because she drank a lot, it could be because she liked younger, younger boys, younger men, uh, but Sam loved her. You know, Sam found her. She he he liked drinking with her. He liked talking to her. He got pissed off that she didn't follow his, his advice. He thought, but you know, he found her to be a very intelligent woman. And when she felt that she was being robbed of uh, Hank's copyrights, uh, and she brought suit against it, Sam almost alone went to the trial to defend her, to speak up for her, and to offer to pay far more than what had been uh, had been paid for the renewal rights to Hank, Hank's songs uh, to show his not only his his belief is that the songs were worth so much more and also to, to show his faith in in Audrey right so it's it's those kinds of it's those kinds of stories you could probably think of others and I could tell you we could talk about them but it's th- that with that in mind I mean it's even for instance in the last weeks of they weren't the last weeks of his life he Sam got sick. Uh, the last time I saw him, I think, was on August 16, 2002. He went into the hospital a week later, and he was essentially um, uh, in hospital from that time until his death on July 30, 2003. And he was on a, um, what do you call it, not a breathing machine, a... Uh, it was a uh, ventilator or something like that. He, yeah. Right. He was on a ventilator yeah. virtually from uh, the beginning of September 2002 uh, until he died on July 30, Yeah, he got sick on the 25th anniversary of uh, Elvis Presley's death, which is... Uh, no, well, he was sick on that day. He, right. he went to the hospital maybe a week later, a week right. or 10 days later. Right. But, but, but my point was that in the, in the two weeks or so leading up, in, in, in the last weeks of July and the early, uh, and the early weeks of, uh, of August, right up until that July 16th when I saw him and he just looked so sick. It was just terrible. Yeah. He he carried out this unbelievable schedule and gave these ins- inspirational talks to independent distributors. And, and I included some of that because I just thought this is a really, you know, inspiring, you know, not everything in the book is inspiring. I mean, some of it you think, well, geez, Sam, why'd you do that? <laughs> and he might say the same. But the point was, it was like, what an inspiring thing to be carried along by your belief, you know, while you're on oxygen, you can barely breathe, you're having, and nobody sees it. I didn't see it. Not even his son Knox saw it. Well, and, and it's, he, it's also just his, it seems to have a ceaseless thirst for knowledge. I mean, when his son Knox yeah. was ill, he was studying up on the medicine and, and trying to figure out, you know, talking to doctors about uh, research he had done. You know, he he invested in a mining company. He there's just so many. Well, yeah. There's just so you know, many. I mean, the, the the zinc mine story. I mean, the point is, if you were a, um, uh, you know, an editor of a certain sort, you'd say, well, take out that zinc mine story. 
you know, you don't need that for, and you don't need it from a logical point of view. Yeah. But it says so much about it. Sam just threw himself into that sink mine. This was around, uh, I think, fifty-nine or sixty. Yeah. You know, to the point where he invent, invented a new method of extracting zinc, uh, and then when the zinc mine collapsed, he walked away from it and never looked back on it. I mean, in a sense, you can see it as, well, he was really kind of lost then. He had lost. He no longer believed in the music industry. He didn't believe there was any place in it for him, for the independent operator. And so he sublimated his interest in something else. But he just was so, he was just so damn interesting. And, and all the time I spent with him, you know, people say to me, well, God, I must have gotten this or that. It didn't get anything. Yeah. It was just, you never knew. It was just all. It was just always fun. It was what Sam said was big fun, and it may not have ended up the way you thought it was. And sometimes you might feel a little badly that it ended in a puddle or something. But, yeah, yeah. But but it was not. Uh, uh, I mean, to the end of his life, when he was in the hospital and he couldn't speak because he was on the ventilator, he's furiously writing notes to his doctor because he's researching ways, man, a manner of attacking his you know his illness and getting him off the ventilator and, and the drug you know saying to the doctor try this and the doctor was very receptive to that but well, right and, he, me- and medical experts are used to people telling them you know what they think should happen but it, it's it's interesting <coughs> to read the quotes from the medical experts that he dealt with saying you know he actually knew what he was talking about it wasn't just like you know an ornery patient who thought <laughs> they knew more than the doctor the doctors were like yeah no his ideas were actually sound well, it was like when Sam, just just before Prozac was approved by the, um, uh, you know, FDA, uh, F- yeah, or, FDA, yeah. Uh, Sam c- comes into his doctor, I mean, and says, "I want you to prescribe Prozac for me," and goes launches into a you know half hour disquisition on all the virtues of Prozac and why it will, why it's the best thing for Sam's particular. Uh, Condition of you know depression or uh, anxiety, and he gets to the end of his talk. He says, "Okay, so write me the prescription." And the doctor says, "Well, I don't, I don't really know anything about Prozac." You know, I, I I guess what launched Sam into the talk. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Was the doctor saying he didn't know anything about yeah. Prozac? And Sam said, well, I'll tell you. And he tells him. And the doctor says, well, I still don't really know enough. And Sam says, well, what the hell else do you need to know? I told you everything you need to know. Do you want it? Do you want it? The doctor wrote him a prescription and it worked the way Sam had, you know, thought that it would. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, but the point was he read up on it. He didn't go in there saying, give me this because I saw it in a, you know, check at the checkout counter. He could cite chapter and verse. And when Knox was in the hospital at MD Anderson, 
you know, these doctors are saying, well, what kind of doctor, what's your specialty doctor? You know, they, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's that, that part of it is really remarkable. And, and also in the book, Phillips is portrayed as, a, as an early proponent of racial equality. And in building the studio and the record label, he had this strong desire to give voice to underrepresented and impoverished black and white artists. Can That's you, right, yeah. Can you speak about where this impulse came from? Because it was obviously very uncommon uh, for the time, and I assume for the region, actually. Well, I mean, it was uncommon. It, it wasn't unique because, I mean, uh, you know, you read uh, a book like uh, The Race Beat by uh, Hank Klebanoff about the early reporters on the civil rights thing, and you find whites who were advocates of civil rights, you know, when it was extremely unpopular. Uh, and you can go through history and find that. But with, where it sprang from with Sam was it sprang from Sam. And I became convinced of it. You know, a lot of times people think, well, what someone is telling you now is just a way of cleaning up the past. It's, it's uh, uh, you know, hindsight. It, or, you know, it, it's just like a, it's a retrospective view in which everything is cleaned up. But when Sam said, well, I was, you know, I perceived this, you know, he says, this is, you know, I saw these people working in the fields, black and white, and I saw the way the social inequities I saw the way in which black people were treated, and I couldn't understand. I thought, this isn't right. And I saw the, you know, children, the, you know, black children that I worked with in the fields and that I that I played with, and they couldn't go to the same school as I did. And I, and, and I, and I, he's, you know, and he said, I, I thought then, what if I had been born black? Could I have put up with this? Could I have? And he said, now, this is a kid, five or six years old, because, you know, as if to bring you back to the present. I mean, as if to say, challenge you to think, well, this is a 75-year-old man recreating his past. But I spoke to you know, members of his family, members of his generation, uh, and I'm not saying that they were against pro civil rights, that they were against progress, but they did not approve at all mm -hmm. of the manner in which Sam, at 6 or 16 or 26 or 66, expressed himself. And they made clear that this was the same Sam Phillips that they had encountered, they, they, they made clear, they, and they probably had admiration because for him, I mean, they did have admiration for all of his achievements, but the point was he, his views had made them extremely uncomfortable at times. His, uh, when uh, Martin Luther King gave his great, uh, you know, I've been to the mountain speech uh, at the uh, March in Washington, and Sam insisted this was the greatest speech that's ever, you know, you're ever going to see to... Uh, a niece of his who was stay, who was staying staying at the house. These were not views that were shared by everyone in the family, but they were views that Sam had espoused from the time he was a kid. And uh, you know, when his his earliest ambition uh, was to be a criminal defense lawyer like Clarence Darrow, and he always emphasized criminal defense. I said criminal defense, and it was to represent the rights of the un, unrepresented. Right. It was to stand up. Uh, you know, for the poor, it was to stand up for people who, he, for the downtrodden, it was to stand up for people who had never had a chance, and it was to get at the roots, not just of crime, but of the ways in which he would be addressing the, you know, whether the Black Lives Matter. I mean, I, I don't know, Sam wasn't big on joining movements, so I'm not going to sign him up for anything. Sure. But the idea of the prison population in this country, the uh, the way in which this has been used to, to sort of shut down in lieu of social programs or something, this is something that would really have uh, exercised his ire. 
And it was the kind of thing that he was reacting to as a 15-year-old kid in Florence, Alabama, going down to the courthouse listening to the you know, lawyers argue. Well, on a, on a more, I suppose, a less, uh, well, I, on a, certainly on a less significant level, Sam was uh, running an independent record label. We live in a world where independent record labels are part of an established infrastructure now, and, and they release some of the world's most popular and successful albums. Now, Sun Records was an indie. Do you think Mr. Phillips' work had a significant impact on the way independent artists and labels are perceived today? Well, I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know about that. Uh, you should talk to Glenn Dicker at Yep Rock, you know, in uh, Raleigh Durham. Uh, they, they put out, uh, I, I put together a, a two CD, three LP anthology of, you know, to, with the same title as the book to represent the book. And that's that's a great independent label. I was just uh, listening to that in the kitchen. I had it blaring in the kitchen before I called you. And uh, a mouse came out of from under the stove nodded at me and then ran back under the stove. I don't know if it was the music or what, but I, I did the mouse. The mouse didn't tip its hat. Did it? I don't know. It didn't. It, <laughs> it definitely looked at me and I think nodded. It was like, thank you for playing this amazing music and then ran away. Well, as Chris Strackwitz has said, says this ain't no mouse music. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen that documentary? No, I haven't actually. But our, it's a great documentary about our Hooli records and Chris Strackwitz. Oh, wow. Uh, and that is, that is what it's called. But but so I, I I don't know I mean I think that Sam saw it as his mission you know right up until two weeks before he got sick you know he addressed the uh, a uh, a convention of independent I'm not sure if they were just distributors or they 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 were uh, they were a variety of independent operators in the record business and the speech that he gave which I quoted again at the very strict editor would say, well, you don't need all that, but I wanted it to represent the human spirit in the book, and I quoted it at some length, uh, uh, you know, towards the end of the book, because it showed Sam's voice coming through. I mean, when his, you know, body was weak, his voice was never stilled. In fact, it rose in thunder, and he, um, and, and he was calling on them. He was calling uh, these independent uh, distributors, you know, the heroes of, uh, of the uh, music business, and yeah. the people had to keep faith so his faith remained in the uh, you know in the independent operator and in, in uh, and he could never have worked in any other field i mean some people have asked me well couldn't he have gone to work for columbia and produced bob dylan he couldn't have he couldn't have operated in that environment and you can e- even see it from the start when he is he desperately desperate for business desperately poor trying to set up business relationships or setting up business relationships with uh, Jules Bahari and with Leonard Chess. And with Leonard Chess, it, the, the deal is actually, it's a, it's a straight 50-50 partnership on the records he delivers. So that when Rocket 88 hit and sold over 100,000 copies, Sam actually made some money. Yeah. But he couldn't, he couldn't operate as, as, as uh, his uh, uh, close friend and associate and... Uh, a uh, woman who loved him dearly, uh, Marion Keisker, said Sam just was not a partner-type person. <laughs> and, uh, I think his example would would be one that would stand up for the you know that would s- still stand for anybody who is thinking of working independently in any field. I mean, it, if they would look at what Sam did and his insistence on on maintaining this sense of individualism in the extreme, I think that it would always stand up as as an example. But but I'm, I'm, you know, I forget what your exact question was, but I'm not sure he could, you could draw a direct link. What, what, what it is is that 
he was he was a one man uh you know a one man operation in a in a storefront location this tiny out of this tiny little studio he he made music that changed the world i, I mean that absolutely changed yeah. the world and that dominated the that dominated the the uh you know the the music charts this tiny little label yeah, I think my question is maybe actually best asked to someone who operates an, an independent business today, because basically I was just wondering if if you thought he might have inspired or the Sun story might have inspired others um, to to do their own thing, and I think I think that's probably true, um, particularly with the success that he that he did have. Although, I mean, one other thing that struck me about the book is that while you know he's driven by his own self confidence and viewed himself, I think, as rather savvy. His early business dealings with other record labels, like some of the people you mentioned, and, and distributors, I mean, he often left himself and son open to like financial ruin. He often seemed to be in some legal or financial dispute throughout his life, and uh, but he always seemed confident and sure he was doing the right thing. Do, do you think he always did the right thing when it came to business? I think he was very canny when it came to business, and he, he was learning as, as he was going along. The fact that, you know, Rocket 88, for example was as huge a hit as it was. I mean, number one R&B sold over 100,000 copies, which is something I only found out recently and it just astonished me that it was that number of copies. Uh, you know, the fact that at that time, Sam had a piece of paper that said that he owned the song, and yet Leonard Chess, I think in no attempt to cheat Sam or anything else, assumed that he had the song and traded the song, not recognizing any more than Sam the value of a copyright, he traded the song uh, in exchange for um, uh, legal work by by the lawyer who did, who did all of Chess's legal work, and that lawyer sold the publishing to Hill and Range. Now that goes to show you the the degree of sophistication that existed in the music business at that time. I mean, these people were just finding their way in the business in a business that had not yet been codified or fully invented. So I, I think that, uh, but the but the principal challenge that Sam uh, uh, you know, uh, ran into in business was the challenge that every uh, independent label has faced since time immemorial. You have to pay your bills. You have to pay, uh, you know, the pressing plant yeah. up front. Yeah. Then you have to get your money from the distributors, and that's the challenge. I mean, the point is, you're if you have a hit, you're going to spend tens of thousands of dollars, or at that time you would, uh, in order to manufacture that hit. Now the hit may might be worth you may be owed at that point hundreds of thousands of dollars, but can you collect? And more small labels were put out of business by a hit than than uh, were you know than than gained uh, success from that hit. So he, what the the point that Sam found him is he persevered through Sam persevered through many difficulties and uh, and continued to take care of. I mean his first priority. Was he had to take care of his own small family, his wife and his two children, uh, as well as his uh, deaf mute aunt in in uh, in Alabama, in yeah. Florence, yeah. and until 1952, his mother. I mean, he was the sole and and whatever else he did, he was going to have enough money to do that, and he and he always did. But the challenge that he ran into, and this is really the ultimate explanation for El, for Elvis Presley, is that. With all the hits that he had, he started son of back up in nineteen fifty three there had been a short right uh, kind of abortive beginning in in fifty two and he had a number of big hits 
uh, with the prisoners uh, just uh, walking in the rain and with little Junior Parker, uh, little Junior's Blue Flames, and with Rufus Thomas, Tiger Man. Uh, but, but a hit meant if he sold 50,000 copies of those songs, that was a big hit. And he, he was just sinking into bankruptcy, not because he wasn't successful, but because he, despite his dream, despite the vision that he had had of creating a music that, uh, you know, that would cut across all boundaries, that would break down all of the uh, categories, uh, whether, you know, it was Rocket 88 or Howlin' Wolf or Little Junior Parker, he had a firm belief that they could reach a mainstream audience. And if they reached that mainstream audience, uh, you know, not only would the thing he most believed in have achieved, you know, he not only would he have achieved his dream by seeing the music in which he believed so strongly reach that audience, he would also be on firm financial footing. But he recognized, you know, by uh, 1954, that he couldn't cross that boundary. That he, and that was when he began to kept coming back to the idea that if I could find a white man with a Negro sound and much more important than Negro feel. And he said, I could make, he said, Marion Keisker quoted him saying, I could make a billion dollars, which sort of showed the irony behind, uh, he wasn't thinking about a billion dollars, but he was thinking about, and he believed that with the success of that music, uh, presented in the, with the sincerity and authenticity and, uh, and belief that he knew uh, artists like Elvis Presley, I mean, he didn't know Elvis Presley at the time, but he knew white artists could could feel as well but if he could present this African-American, uh, this music that had been developed uh, within the African-American you know, culture and world, if he could present it through the vehicle of a white artist who could, uh, who could sing the music, who could uh, present the music with just as much authenticity and belief, once, the, once that mainstream audience heard the music, there, there would be no stopping it. Right. And, and, and at that point... The gates would swing open wide, and through those gates, through those doors, would come a procession of all the great black artists who were around, and they would no longer be consigned to a, uh, you know, to a subsidiary role. They would no longer be R&B stars. They would be stars of popular music, and that, that is exactly what happened. It's not that he made it happen alone, but essentially, you, you know, you had these great artists like Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and Little Richard and Ray Charles, just to name a few, once rock and roll arrived, in in the aftermath of Elvis and Carl Perkins, and uh, uh, once rock and roll arrived, uh, all of those artists became artists, mainstream artists. They became super uh, superstars. Right. And and uh, you know Sam yielded to no one in his admiration for any of these artists. It was he. It wasn't like he was trying to rank them or uh, say this person is better than another. He, each of them deserved his or her own superlative, but but uh, it was with that breakthrough that he was unable to make through just through its representation by R and B singers. Yeah, yeah. That breakthrough by Elvis that he was finally able to achieve the vision that he had had since long before he ever opened the recording studio. And I mean, some have viewed, in hindsight, his selling of Elvis Presley's contract to RCA for thirty-five thousand dollars as as somewhat short-sighted, or, or it's, I think people marvel at it, but it was actually a lot of money at the time. And he it was most that was ever it was most that was ever paid for a popular artist. Right, and he had no choice. I mean, if he hadn't, done, and he resisted, he didn't want to sell the contract. But 
That was no, a... but he had he he was on the verge of bankruptcy. You can see in the book. You can see yeah, yeah. how he's just fluttering there. He's having tremendous difficulty paying off his brother Judd uh, for his share of the company. Yeah. Uh, he he is unable to pay Elvis's back royalties. So part of the deal was to throw, in addition to the thirty-five thousand dollars that Sam got, there was another five thousand dollars, which was taking a settlement of all of Elvis's back royalties. Uh, it wasn't that he kept track of the royalties. It wasn't that he had no intention of paying them. He had no money to pay them with. Yeah. But with that $35,000, he had the seed money to establish a company which was not going to be devoted to one artist, which he, he just was determined he was not going to be a one-artist company and that could actually promote the records it put out. And what was the first record he put out You know, after selling Elvis's contract? Or maybe it wasn't the first, but it was in the immediate aftermath, was Blue Suede Shoes by Carl Perkins, right. which, went, which was the first record to go to the top of all three charts, uh, you know, country, R&B, and pop, and which led the way ahead of Heartbreak Hotel, Elvis's first RCA release. I mean, both of them ended up pretty much even, but which created a whole new market uh, that broke down, uh, broke down all of those categories that had been so strictly established and that had made the uh, music business such a segregated place. Yeah. Now, now, you worked with Sam on an A&E biography film about his life. We alluded to that earlier, and, and he knew I, he knew you had a book planned uh, before he passed away in 2002. Did he have a chance to read any version of this book? No, no, and, and, and he, I can't say that he wanted me to write a book. <laughs> that was That's different from knowing that, uh, and I hadn't begun it. He, I had agreed. He, he was always talking from the time I first met him about his book, and... Uh, you know, he. Um, I remember one time, you know, he would say frequently, uh, he says, I done give away my book, you know, after we had been talking for six or seven hours. One time he says, he says, I done give away my book. And his son Knox says, well, shut the F up then, you know, <laughs> 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 uh, in, in the kindest and most loving way. Uh, but no, he, he had, so he had been talking about his book for, and he, and, and then he, he was firmly fixed. I mean, he, Sam didn't give himself over easily to anyone or anything. I mean, it took a commitment was serious with him, and it took a while to make a commitment. It took, it took I think nine years for me to sell him on the idea of doing the documentary. Yeah, me and me and Knox. I don't Knox was with me every step of the way, but I started uh, pitching it in 1990, and strongly pitching it probably in a, in the form. Eventually, it came out for about in 95 and eventually we made it in 99 and it was what Sam wanted more than anything but he was not going to give up he give himself over to it lightly and when he did it there was nothing else on his mind he did it dedicated himself to it totally there was no drinking there was no there was no side project there was nothing you know but that but he uh you know and in the same way he said to me um more than once but he but he said to me he says you know Knox loved you from the first. I didn't. <laughs> and, you know, it took a while to win his trust. I mean, he sort of put it, he, you know, he had a diplomatic side, so he put it on the fact that he said, I know you were just, you were looking at me, you know, you were just, you weren't sure about me. And I'm thinking, I wasn't sure about you. I was sure about you from the minute I met you, but I wasn't, I wasn't going to argue the point. But so, but by the late, you know, by the time we were doing the documentary, which in essence, I think became his, not the basis for his book, but it, for an autobiography, but he, the thing was, no matter what 
we asked of him, no matter what. I mean, I could ask him about the Million Dollar Quartet, and he could start telling me about his sixth grade teacher. You know, I mean, he was going to get everything in. And we didn't get everything into the documentary and couldn't have and wouldn't have wanted to. But but Sam saw this as an opportunity to put it all down. And when we went back to Florence, it was almost like as long as I had known him at that point. It was 20 years I had known him by that time. Right. And uh, I, it was a different Sam. It was a completely different Sam. And in the enhanced ebook uh, edition of of the book of the of the Sam's biography that I'm working on now, all of the video that I'm going to include will be from the interviews we did in Florence because oh, it was wow. just it was he was just a different person. But but it was around that time, maybe just before you know, it was plus or minus. He started talking to me quite a bit about doing his book with him. He, I was, he wanted me to do it with him. And I, I was not thrilled about the idea um, for two reasons. I mean, one was that I, I wasn't convinced that he really wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. And the other was I, I felt like it was fraught with danger, <laughs> with, with, with tensions that could arise. And, I, you know, I loved Sam. And I, I, but I finally agreed to do it when we were out in Seattle. We did this thing at EMP uh, in the spring of 2002, in May of 2002, and I did. I agreed to do it as I did one, as I agreed to one or two other projects, which never happened, because I cared so much about Sam. I just didn't want to say no to him. And he had he arranged this special breakfast that we had, and, and you know he had the whole thing worked out about how we were going to do. He was going to get two digital recorders, which was a new thing then, and we could exchange. You know, we could work so much more intimately. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just like you want to, just like you record your uh, interviews. Yeah. And I and I agreed to it without, you know, I agreed to it with misgivings, but without any holdback. I mean, I was going to do it because Sam wanted to do it, because I cared about Sam. But that was the last I ever heard of it. I mean, I didn't believe at the time that he really wanted to do it. I've talked with Sally Wilburn, uh, you know, who lived with him from. from 68 on and was with him from 56 on uh, and she she said well Peter I didn't I never really thought he wanted to do it he talked about it but he didn't really want to do it so in essence what he got uh, you know was I think it was what Knox wanted and it was what Sam wanted would have wanted in the end which was you know a book that did, did justice or, or attempted to do justice to the dimensionality of the story, to the complexity of the story, to the, you know, tragedy, comedy, uh, threnody, lyricism, you know. Just, it's like, a, you know, he saw his life as a kind of epic movie, and I wanted to write a book that was really fun. <laughs> uh, free, and that and that had some of that, you know, dimension to it. Uh, but it wasn't something that Sam was aware of, or even uh, that I had, I had not certainly not started on it formally while he was alive. Oh, okay. You mentioned uh, just now that you were working on this ebook uh, version of this biography. What what else is coming up for you? What's next for you? I mean, I assume you finish a project like this book and need a break uh, to recalibrate. Uh, do you have any plans? Well, I, I want to go back to this uh, collection of uh, sort of loosely connected short stories that I've been working on for the last several years. And... Uh, I think I've got about 300, 350 pages of, I mean, whether those are all, whether all of those stories are ones that I'd keep, but it, it's like a short story cycle, a very loose 
loose short story cycle. And I, there are a whole bunch of stories that. Uh, this is uh, uh, this is actual fiction. Like this is uh, fiction. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, it, it's what's funny about it is that what inspired it. I mean, I've written about ten novels, and I when I was a kid, when I was twenty and twenty one or twenty two, I published two collections of short stories with a small uh, publisher in Cambridge, mm-hmm. uh, a guy named Larry Stark, who had his own imprimatur as the Larry Stark Press. Um, and I, I've published one novel, but I and part of another, but I've written ten, uh, and I haven't. And I have the la- the latest, the last one uh, has been in manuscript. I still think about finishing it. I mean, I, I, uh, but what inspired me on the short stories in particular? I mean, my great hero is Alice Munro, uh, or one of my great heroes. Uh, just, uh, but I, I, but the, what inspired me in, in this particular case was reading. Uh, a book by Don Powell, who's known for her New York novels, these kind of um, witty uh, New York novels, literary New York novels, but who wrote a whole bunch of Ohio novels before, uh, earlier than that. And uh, there's a book of hers called, and a novel of hers called My Home is Far Away. And I read it one time was I, when I was out on the road, and I don't know what it was, but it just loosed something in me. It was kind of like uh, the Sam effect. I mean, it was as if Don Powell's My Home is Far Away was was my Sam Phillips in the studio or something. <laughs> that's something loosened me about it. It opened up a whole area of uh, subject matter, uh, personal subject matter that I just had never considered before. And um, it, it, the book, uh, My Home is Far Away, is, it's, is almost like, I've said this before, but it's almost like, uh, you know, the Bergman film, um, uh, Fanny and Alexander. Right, uh, great, a great, great movie. I mean, really, uh, an epic movie, but uh, epic family movie. But, uh, but, my home is far away. Is kind of like Fanny and Alexander go to Ohio. Hmm. I mean, it has sort of almost a mythic quality to it, but it had, but a very strong, uh, realistic element to it. Um, so anyway, that that's that's what I want to that's what I want to do next, and and whether I'll ever find an outlet for it, whether there's anything to do with the stories or not it it gives me great uh satisfaction to uh to write them oh that's excellent that's excellent to hear well once again uh, for people listening the new book by peter goralnik is called sam phillips the man who invented rock and roll it's a compelling and astonishing read and it's out now via little brown and company and you can learn more about it at petergoralnik.com uh, peter you alluded to the fact that you curated this uh, compilation for the uh, Yep Rock label, and it's uh, it's the same name. It's Sam Phillips, the man who invented rock and roll. Fifty fifty five songs, and right. I, I wondered I wondered if we could go out on one of those songs by your selection. Uh, is there something that comes to mind? You know, there, no. I mean, there's so many. <laughs> we could, you know, you could go out on uh, Moaning at Midnight or uh, uh, Little Junior Parker, Love My Baby, or Elvis's Mystery Train. You know, it. it uh, what about? And I, I don't. I seldom uh, suggest things in this uh, portion of the show, but Rocket '88 is uh, very significant, and uh, I, I think that it. it, it I'd kind of forgotten how important that song was, and I don't know if that's an appropriate one to go out on. Or I tell you what, if you want to go out on a Rocket '88 type song, I'd go out on that uh, Howlin' Wolf. Uh, yeah, Mr. Highwayman, Cadillac Daddy. Yeah. But uh, the funny thing with Howlin' Wolf is, you know, with his one, with what I think was his first public utterance when Rocket 88 came out, Sam got um, 
a reporter from the Commercial Appeal, uh, the Memphis Commercial Appeal, to come out and see uh, Jackie Branson and Ike Turner right. yeah, yeah. Uh, out at the uh, W.C. Handy Theater in Orange Mound. And the guy wrote quite appreciatively of, about the show and the music. And uh, He was not a music reporter. I, uh, he was just somebody Sam knew at the paper. And uh, uh, But he wrote about Sam, too. And Sam spoke at that time about his belief in the music's across-the-board, potential across-the-board appeal. I mean, it was clear that from the very beginning, or before the very beginning, he believed that this music could reach everybody, irrespective of class, race, region, anything. Right. Category. And, um, but he always said to me, and I'm sure he said to many, to, to many others, that he felt that Howlin' Wolf could have been as big. I mean, Howlin' Wolf to him was the most profound of all the artists that he ever recorded. Howlin' Wolf and Charlie Rich, who couldn't have been more different in some ways, but who were similar, not just in Sam's mind, but in their in the depth of their feeling, uh, the depth of feeling they conveyed through their music, the, the painful, the pain of their music, and the joy of the music too. But uh, but with Howlin' Wolf, Sam would say that he could have been just as big. You know, with he could have been just as big as Elvis with white kids as well as with black. And I've got to say, and I, this is one of those things, this, this is a conundrum to me. I don't quite see it. <laughs> I mean, there's nobody who admires Howlin' Wolf more, more than I, you know, more than I do. I mean, maybe Sam did, but, but to me, when, when Sam said this is where the soul of man ever, you know, uh, never dies, uh, I'll, I'll agree. I'll, I'll agree. I'll say yes and thunder, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. But, so I don't have any holdback about how great Howlin' Wolf was, but Sam envisioned, uh, you know, Wolf as having that across-the-board appeal. And um, this song, uh, uh, Cadillac, uh, Cadillac Daddy, uh, Mr. Highwayman, this song in a way embodies, I think, part of the way that Sam thought that Wolf could get across. Um, and then he could put uh, moaning, moaning at midnight on the other side and scare the hell out of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, I think he wrote, he wrote to uh, um, Gene Nobles over at WLAC, where he had worked before coming to Memphis, uh, where Sam had worked before coming to Memphis. And he wrote to uh, that the moaning at midnight, he thought, was the most different record he had ever heard. And it is. And it, it's just an incredible masterpiece by Wolf. But as far as just pure driving rhythm goes, you know, I, I, I'd go for uh, uh, for Cadillac Daddy, Mr. Highwayman. All right, let's do it. This is Howlin' Wolf. And, uh, Peter, this was a, a huge thrill for me. I hope uh, I hope I'm not embarrassing you by saying that. I thank you for being on this show, and I, I thank you for writing this great book about Sam Phillips and, and all your work, and I, I wish you the best of luck going forward. Oh, well, thanks so much. I've, I've really enjoyed it, and I'm hoping we, our paths will cross uh, sometime before long. Pick up what you're driving, man. That Cadillac may get away, you better be careful. Down standing the highway, man, standing parked on the road. For the red light just before you go. Green lights are go, red lights are stop. Look at your boy, you better be on your watch. There's a highway man parked on the side of the road. You better 
better be careful about how you drive on the road. was Howlin' Wolf with Mr. Highwayman, that particular version taken from the new compilation called Sam Phillips, The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll. It's 55 songs over three vinyl records or two CDs. It's available courtesy of Yep Rock Records, and uh, as you may have gathered by now, it's a Sun Records-based uh, compilation, and it shares the name of the new book by Peter Goralnik. What? How? I can't believe it. Peter Goralnik was on my show, and he was a perfectly nice guy. I don't, you you know, you listen to the show. I don't often get star. I never get really starstruck. Sometimes I get a little nervous, but I'm not. Uh, that was that was a, this big deal for me. And he's a nice guy. So that that it's always nice when they're nice. The people you admire when they're nice, that's always the best. So thanks again to Peter for being on the show. Please pick up his new book. It's wonderful. As uh, and I hope you were intrigued by what we were talking about. It's it's great. And Sam Phillips was a. A very interesting and fascinating guy. Great subject for a book. Uh, coming up this week, as I mentioned last week, part one of two of a moderated conversation between Steve Albini and Ian Mackay. Very excited to share this with you. I hope you enjoy it. I, I'm excited. I'm very excited to share it and hear what you think. So do that. Listen to that. If you want to keep up with this show, you, you can. There's numerous ways to do that. First of all, the show is available on iTunes and Audioboom.com. You can listen to it there. You can stream it. You can download it. You can share it. iTunes and Audioboom.com. Just look up Creative Control with Vishkana. There's a Patreon.com page where people can make flexible monthly donations to the show to keep it going. And there's some t-shirts for sale there as well. Creative Control with Vishkana is on Facebook and on Twitter at Vish Creative. I am personally on Twitter at Vishkana. And you can listen to a version of this show on CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph, Ontario, uh, every Wednesday at noon Eastern Standard Time, and it's also available around the world at CFRU.ca. All right. Again, Steve Albini, Ian Mackay coming up this week. Great month coming up for this uh, show. I'm excited about all the people that are going to be on the show and I can't wait to tell you more about it. Again, 
Keep your eye on all that stuff. Oh, and the newsletter. The newsletter came back. It's been a while, but I put out a newsletter this week and it felt good. I'll try to keep doing that so you're uh, in the loop ahead of everybody else. So subscribe to that as well. Okay. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.